The views and opinions expressed on this show do not necessarily express those held by this station or its advertisers and are strictly the opinions held by those contributing to the show. Welcome to the Eric Little High School Football Podcast, your home for news, discussion, and opinions about high school football in the Mid-Ohio Valley. And now, here's your host, Eric Little. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Eric Little High School Football Podcast. Once again, I am the namesake. Happy to have you with us this week. We'll recap the quarterfinal round of the postseason, get you set up for the local team that are playing in semifinal action, and we'll have a look at last week's poll question and a lot of discussion about fields and field conditions in this state. That's a spoiler, possibly, of what next week's poll question will be about. But first, let's go ahead and take a deeper look at what happened last week. Parkersburg South is on to the semifinals after rallying from 10 down to the half to defeat Musselman. The Patriots defeated the Appleman 52-33, overcoming a sloppy field in the second half when the rain set in and three turnovers in the first half. Brandon Penn scored four touchdowns, three of them in the second half and took the game over in the second half. He ran for two, threw for one on a big pass play to Levi Rice, and had a pick six that all but sealed the game in the closing minutes. Second defensive score of the year, by the way, for Brandon Penn. When you add Penn's two defensive scores to his offensive output, the numbers are staggering. Penn has thrown for 25 touchdowns, he's rushed for 19, and he's returned a fumble and an interception both for touchdown. It adds up to 46 total touchdowns for Brandon Penn this season. Devin Gaines added two touchdown runs for South. He's up to 22 two rushing scores this season. Penn's only mistake was a fumble into the end zone that Jake Hogs had fell on. That gave South the go-ahead score in the game, canceling out Penn's only mistake. So the Patriots got off to a sluggish start against a Musselman team that was playing without star Blake Hartman. Coming into the game, we all thought this was going to be a battle of two Kennedy Award candidates. Instead, Hartman didn't play after tweaking an ankle against PHS the week before, so it was all Brandon Penn. And oddly enough, he did most of his damage when the weather deteriorated later in the afternoon. So it's Parkersburg South that will head to Martin this weekend, and they will try to end Martinsburg's 54-game winning streak. Can they do it? Well, that remains to be seen. A lot can happen between here and there. Again, this time last week, we thought Musselman would have Blake Hartman. Hartman was leading Class AAA with over 2,000 rushing yards. He could throw for touchdowns. He caught touchdown passes. He ran for touchdowns. He was somebody that, in short, we knew we were going to have to watch for until we didn't, until it came out that he was not going to play, until it was evident he was not going to play. Ben Bartles did a good job in his stead, rushing for two touchdowns, but Musselman can never seriously get a ground game going. They needed to do that, and that's what surprised me the most, that even without Hartman, Musselman couldn't get anything at all going on the ground. They needed that to happen, and it didn't, and they also needed the rain to slow Parkersburg South's passing game, and by and large, it didn't. South had taken the lead before the rain really set in, and then they could run the ball and run the clock down and control the tempo. I'll be honest, I think if there's anybody in the state that can come close to Martinsburg, it might be Parkersburg South, because they can do so many things well, and they're so multifaceted on offense and they have a punishing defense up front. I don't know that the skill players for South can match Martinsburg's skill players. A lot of what I see on social media are comparisons between 2002 and this year. In 02, South went to Martinsburg in the semifinals. A lot of people had Martinsburg heavily favored to win that game. South went over there. The Mike Duvall-led Patriots defeated Martinsburg 24-21 that year. They would go on to the state championship where they would lose to Morgantown, and then South would go back to the island the following year and beat Martinsburg in Wheeling 26-20 to claim their first state championship and their only state championship in school history. But to be quite honest, I don't think that's a really fair or valid comparison comparing this to the 2002 situation. Martinsburg in 02 wasn't quite
quite what they are nowadays. I don't know that people in the western part of the state can quite grasp how much Martinsburg has grown and how much that area of the state has grown since then. We see a lot of it on paper, but consider this. South now has playoff history with St. Mary's, a team that's now in Class A, because St. Mary's faced Musselman, beat Musselman in 1984 when both were AA schools. Musselman has gone up in enrollment since then. So too is Hedgesville. Spring Mills was created from the rib of Martinsburg, and they're a AAA school. So you have four AAA schools now out in the eastern panhandle, and it didn't used to be that way. So on paper, we ought to be able to see that population rise and increase. Spring Mills is the only school, by the way, that was created out of an existing West Virginia school in recent times. It's going the other way. The trend is going the other way with consolidation, causing the number of schools to shrink and closures happening and seeing some programs shuttered and newer programs created in the shadows of those old programs, but not in the eastern panhandle. A lot of that has happened in the last 20 years. So 2002 and 2019, not valid comparisons. The talent pool much deeper out there now than it was then, and the program is much better at Martinsburg now than it was then. They were a playoff team then, sure, but they were not the juggernaut that they are now. So that's not a valid comparison as I see it. Either way, South stands as good a shot as anybody to end Martinsburg streak. The Bulldogs have 54 straight wins. South hopes to end that streak. And you know one thing they've got going for them that a lot of other teams don't? A chance. You're playing in a game against them. You have a chance to beat them. You're going to show up that day. A lot of other teams aren't going to have that opportunity. But I certainly think that Parkersburg South stands as good a shot as anybody. Maybe Cabell Midland on the other side of the semis as Cabell Midland will take on Spring Valley this week in the other semi. I think Cabell Midland has been dominant this year, and I think they could score on Martinsburg. Because I think South will, to be quite honest. Martinsburg has won their two playoff games, 84-0 and 70-0 respectively. But I think that South will at least score this week on Martinsburg. But as to ending the streak, it's a tall order that South has ahead of them. Williamstown is headed to a semifinal rematch with Doddridge County after a win over Greenbrier West. The Yellow Jackets picked up that win on Friday night, and they're electing to play on Friday again, so the rare team in this area that seems to be able to play three weeks in a row on Friday night on a muddy field at Greenbrier West. And by the way, that's going to be a recurring theme of today's show. Williamstown went on the road, built up a 21-point lead in the first half, and they defeated Greenbrier West 34-22. Time Moore turned in another big effort, 245 rushing yards, more with three touchdowns, two of those coming in the second half when the game needed sealed. Braden Modest threw for a score to Logan Richards. Richards also ran for a score, becoming an emerging threat perhaps for Terry Smith, although again, you say that, but Richards had just three touches, two on the ground and one in the air. Two of his three touches went for touchdown. That's not bad in and of itself. The second half was basically dueling banjos between Noah Brown of Greenbrier West and Ty Moore, with Moore having the last say, but again, three scores for more, 245 yards on the ground. To put this into some perspective, go back and look at what Moore did in Williamstown's opening round win. Against Tug Valley, Moore had 151 yards and two rushing scores. So 400 rushing yards in two games, five touchdowns, not bad work for Ty Moore in the first two rounds. Not quite putting this team on his shoulders, but doing a lot to get there. You certainly have to like the effort you're getting from him and the production you're getting from him this late in the season. Ritchie County has done the Rebels a bit of a shocking defeat in so much as the way it happened, especially given what we heard about Wheeling 
Wheeling Central. We had heard Wheeling Central was beaten. They were too battered. They were too injured. There was too much going against them. But Wheeling Central went into a hostile environment, and they won 13 to nothing against Ritchie County. Central scored early. It was a 7 nothing game for a long time. Then finally, Central scored late after an interception to seal a 13 to nothing win. Bottom line on this one, Ritchie County could not get anything going on offense. And that is why this is a loss that surprises me. On a muddy, wet day, you'd think the Ritchie County running game might get a bit of traction going. They did not. 30 carries, 73 yards, as you have to wonder why Ritchie County seemed to abandon the run as early as they apparently did. In the local paper, Rick Holt was quoted as saying, we had good plays, but we just couldn't string a drive together. You have to like that their defense only limited Wheeling Central to 13 points as well. So how about this? Wheeling Central with 26 total points in the first two rounds of the playoffs. They're moving on because of their defense, limiting Tulsa to 12 and Ritchie County to nothing. 26 points doesn't usually win you one game, much less two. But Central's moving on to the semifinals where they'll face Pendleton County next week and make the trip out to the eastern part of the state. The thing that jumps out at me from the box score, how does Trey Moss wind up with just 11 touches for Ritchie County? Garrett Owens had nine touches. There was some efforts to get the ball into the hands of some other players. Graydon McKinney with a couple rushes, Caden Procasina. Ritchie County tried some different things, you could tell, but 11 touches for Moss after he has been expected to carry the load for most of the back half of the season with the absence of Garrett Owens for three games. To me, that's a little bit stunning that they only went to that well 11 times. I think I'd have tried a little longer to see if you get Moss going in this game, but 11 touches for your best offensive player probably is not a recipe that's going to win you a lot in the postseason. And I think the teams who win and the teams that lose in the postseason are separated by one big thing. The teams that win tend to find ways to get the ball into the hands of their best players. The teams that lose are the teams that have their best players neutralized, mitigated, or in other words, don't get them the ball nearly enough as they should, whether it's a coach's decision or whether that's the other team taking that person out of the game. 11 touches for Moss in a game that, no question, sloppy conditions played to Central's favor. Central doesn't have quite the firepower they're used to. They don't have quite the firepower that maybe Ritchie County had in this game, but that was neutralized somewhat by sloppy conditions as the passing game for the Rebels, somewhat ineffective. Ethan Hot 7 of 14, was picked twice, though, for Ritchie County. Is They had three turnovers in the game. Wheeling Central had none. Parkersburg South survived three turnovers. Ritchie County could not. The defense for Wheeling Central absolutely suffocating on Saturday. In a game that looked very similar on paper, the way it played out, St. Mary's is done as well. The Devils had no offense either in a loss at Pendleton County. They took a 2-0 lead on an early safety, but in a lot of ways their game mirrored Ritchie County. They allowed a score early. That became a 7-2 score in the first half. Pendleton County led, and then it was only late that Pendleton went up by a second score to go up 13-2 to win 13-2. Good work for St. Mary's so to bounce back from missing the playoffs last year. Stay connected with us on Facebook. Like our page, the Eric Little High School Football Podcast. While you're there, answer our weekly poll question and feel free to share your comments or questions. Eric will get to those on a future edition of the show. Let's take a look at last week's poll question. You're going to find out that last week's poll question and this week's poll question are related. And in fact, I hate to bias this week's poll question, but I've got a couple thoughts that I cannot wait to put out there. This week's poll question, should West Virginia utilize neutral sites for some or all of the football playoffs and why? 
why. I later clarified that I'm talking about all the rounds leading up to the Super 6, but not the Super 6 itself. I'm not saying the state championship should be contested on home fields. I'm saying that for all rounds leading up to the finals, the Super 6, whatever you want to call them, should West Virginia utilize neutral sites for some or all of the football playoffs and why? 26 of you voted. 58% said no. 42% said yes. 58% of you, the majority, said that West Virginia should not utilize neutral sites for some or all of the football playoffs. I'll read some of the comments. We had a lot of comments on this one, actually. Craig Dutton writes, Even though it's nice to have home sites to benefit the top seeds, I've always liked the atmosphere for Ohio playoff games and neutral sites. Both have to travel to a certain degree, and it balances the momentum evenly. You get prepared for the state championship atmosphere in rounds earlier than just the state title game. Again, Craig has worked playoff games in Ohio, so have I. It is a different atmosphere in the playoffs because it feels more evenly balanced. They try to do that in the West Virginia playoffs, but still, you're still at the home stadium, and it's hard to take away that home field advantage, especially if it's a turf versus a grass issue. My partner on V96.9, Garrett Furr, responds, I have to disagree with Craig. I believe the teams who have performed at a higher level throughout the season deserve to have home field advantage. If you take home field away from the higher-seeded teams, you lose some meaningful regular season games as well when teams are trying to get a better seat in the current format, and that is an excellent point. What is the purpose of the regular season if to win and, and have a better record, you're only going to get a neutral site in the postseason? You would be basically taking out all the incentives of having a great regular season. You open Pandora's box when you're tasked with finding neutral site fields. Consider two teams playing in a neutral site who would work the gates, concessions, press box, and chain crew. Would they be inclined to take as good a care of someone else's facilities as they would their own? All of those very good points, especially this weekend, a holiday weekend, when if you were to play on a neutral site, you would be asking administrators, gate workers, and possibly all kinds of personnel from a site that maybe hasn't hosted football in three or four weeks to come in on a holiday weekend and give up a Friday or Saturday afternoon or evening and stage a playoff game for two schools that aren't yours. And another good question, would they be inclined to take as good of care of someone else's facilities as they would their own? Right. Who polices that? Does each school charge some kind of a security deposit? Does the SSAC come in and mandate how well someone takes care of someone else's field? Do you have inspectors for that? Does that create more work for them? I don't know. That's another great point that Garrett brings up. Andrew Bailey writes, what's the point of having a better record and having a higher seed? Again, another valid point. If you have the higher record and the better seed, that somewhat gets mitigated by the fact that you're on a neutral field. However, in Ohio, the playoffs pretty much go chalk anyway. So with rare exceptions, it seems that those things go right down the line, regardless of where the games are being played. So I think that's why they haven't had to address that problem the way that we might need to take a look at it, at the very least, in West Virginia. And finally, Donald Butcher triggers this week's poll question by saying the first thing West Virginia needs to tackle is all postseason games should be played on turf, period. And you know what? I don't like opining on the current poll question before I let that out there, before really that gets out there into your hands, because I don't want to bias it one way or the other. But this weekend won me over on Donald's point. That's a point that Donald has been making for several years, and he finally won me over on it this weekend. I'm not talking about the game that I did, South and Musselman. Though it was rainy and muddy, the field held up in good condition because it was well kept throughout the year. And that's a field that hosts middle school football, JV football from time to time, band competitions are held there, they have boys and girls soccer that are also played on that field. And for all the events that Erickson hosts, they did a good job of keeping that grass field in really good shape. And it was only the final event of the year there, varsity football game number seven, played in a driving rain for the second half where you really started to see a muddy, sloppy field, which is going to happen on 
any tract of grass, no matter where you put it. That field is going to be a muddy, sloppy mess when you play a game in rain, the way this one was played in rain. But there were a lot of other fields that I saw in pictures from throughout the state that looked like a total disaster, looked like a total mess. Williamstown and Greenbrier West played in a mud bowl. I hear the same thing from St. Mary's and Pendleton. I didn't see pictures from that one, but I definitely saw a lot of pictures on social media from Williamstown and Greenbrier West. Uh, there was nothing charming about Charmco on Friday night. It was a muddy, sloppy mess. I don't think it was any worse than Polka Oak Glen, as there were what looked like ankle-deep puddles of rain pooled up in spots in the mud. And I get that the purists would say, well, this is how football should be played. You know, it's played on all conditions and played with sloppy fields. But when you've got a state championship to be decided and a state playoff to be decided, the conditions ought to be taken out of the variable. It should come down to who are the two best teams in the state. The field conditions, quite frankly, were atrocious. And they're the biggest argument in favor of neutral sites, to be quite honest, because we do, as Donald has insisted for a long time, we do have enough artificial surfaces in this state now to where it wouldn't be too burdensome. And it would also maybe convince some people to invest in artificial surfaces and upgrade their facilities. That's what they've done in Ohio. That's why some places in Ohio don't host playoff games. And that's what has happened in Ohio when they've gone to neutral sites. And I'm not saying neutral sites in Ohio are not without problems. Here's a story from my very first season with Seven Rangers Radio back in 2007. Dave St. Peter and I went to do a River Shadyside game in Martin's Ferry in the second round of the playoffs. That was the first round of the playoffs where those games go on neutral sites because you can play home games in the first round of the playoffs. So River won their home game. They go on the road to Martin's Ferry. Great field, great set of grandstands, plenty of room for people to mill about. I assume parking was adequate. Here's the shortfall. Martin's Ferry hadn't been good at all that year and they hadn't hosted any games there for probably three or four weeks. The school administration, in their infinite wisdom, had shut off the phone lines in the press box. They had cut those for the season. And I get that schools don't want to keep those things open forever, but phone lines are vital to broadcast on when you're broadcasting on the radio. Of course, we all use cell phone equipment now, and cell phone equipment can do the trick in most places, but the audio quality is not as good, for one. And in 2007, we did not have quite the cell equipment and the capabilities that we have now. So it was the second game we had done that day. It's the only time I've ever done this, where Dave and I had two games that day. We had Tyler Consolidated in a playoff game a Saturday afternoon. We drove to Martin's Ferry from Middleburn, and everything had gone well. We even had time to stop and get something to eat. We stroll up to the press box at Martin's Ferry High School. We go to set up, and the phone lines are dead. And so we go to the administration and say, hey, the phone lines are dead here. What can you do for us? And they said, well, we can refund your check. And... To his credit, my partner at the time, Dave St. Peter, said, that's not an option. We already have sponsors on this broadcast. What can you do for us? So what they did is they had a field house in the corner of the end zone. We ran a phone line out from the field house to the ledge, this little stoop that overlooked the corner of the end zone, and people in front of us were probably about four or five deep, and we stood on chairs with our equipment on the edge of a retaining wall, and we did that playoff game behind an end zone just so we could get on the air. Temperatures dipped below 40. I was probably a lousy partner to work with in the second half of that game, especially the fourth quarter, because I got cold, and when I get cold, I clam up sometimes. It was difficult to work, but we still got the game on the air. But that was a major problem in facilities, and sometimes facilities don't often address the needs of the media, which is a point I'll get to in a second. But that's a problem that crops up when you go neutral site. Stuff like that isn't ready. What happens when you open a concession stand and maybe a pipe is burst that you didn't account for? Then you've got a problem there because all those concession stands are equipped with pipes and in some cases 
full working kitchens. But to be honest, the field conditions this weekend make the biggest argument that I've seen yet for why these things ought to be on neutral sites and why these things probably ought to be on artificial surfaces because the fields that I saw for the most part were sloppy. To be quite honest, here's what I would do. I would mandate artificial surfaces but allow people to keep them on their home fields. So you either have to do one of two things. You either have to install an artificial surface or give up your home game. That gets people to improve their facilities. Some of you might ask, does that shut out some of the schools that don't have as much money, don't have as much wealth? Perhaps it does, but maybe the facilities need to be stepped up at that expense, to be quite honest. It used to be, growing up, and I remember this growing up in the 90s, every year, the SSAC meetings on Sunday, before each round of the playoffs, there was a bit of intrigue because someone always protested someone else's field, and it was a big story during the week. Would this field stand up? Would the game be moved? And then finally, yes, it is moved. No, it's not moved. We don't have the protests of fields anymore. No one protests the field conditions anymore. And because of that, we see some games contested on absolutely garbage-looking fields. And these are games that come 12, 13 games into a season that decide whether or not a team is going to play for a state championship or not. Some might say, well, it's not fair to the community to go take that game out of a community. They've worked hard to put their money into getting that field ready and, and doing the things that they need to do to host the game. Well, you know who it's really unfair to? It's unfair to the players and the coaches who put a lot of work in since well before August at getting ready to play for a state championship. The last thing they deserve is to have the field conditions play any role in whether or not they get there. So yes, while it might disenfranchise and close out some smaller schools and it might force some other districts to spend money that maybe they don't spend or maybe would be better spent elsewhere, well, I think we are long overdue to step up facilities, and specifically the facilities where we play high school playoff games, because the field conditions, that's only scratching the surface, to be quite honest. The two things about the playoff regulations that people seem to notice, the amount of seating and the field conditions. Beyond that, here's a bigger one that gets overlooked a lot. Bathrooms. I'm not talking about bringing in porta johns I'm talking about permanent bathrooms. How many toilets does your facility have if you're going to expect a crowd of 2,500 people, of 5,000 people? Can you adequately provide for their needs? And I'm fine if you have to use porta johns to buffer the needs on some big games. That's fine, but that should not be your primary means of facilitating the bathroom needs of your crowd. A big one is press box needs because that affects the coaching staff and it affects the game operations and the media that are there to cover your team. People want to gripe about how the media doesn't cover this game and the media doesn't cover that game, give the media space to work. Some newspaper reporters opt to work upstairs in a press box. Some like to work on the field. Many work on the field nowadays because they're also shooting photographs depending on where they work. But at the same time, they should have space both up and down to do that. Radio crews need space in press boxes, at least the shoulder length width of your crew. I have done playoff games in this state where I stood behind my broadcast partner and looked over his shoulder for four quarters because the press box was that tightly packed. Game operations had to do the same thing. We were all snug in the press box in that particular event, and that's not how it ought to be. Everybody should have their own space, and everybody should be able to do what they need to do. And I know that this is becoming tougher because more and more people are streaming through NFHS or through other things, but as I've said a long time about state basketball and press row and state basketball, if your facility cannot handle the media needs, then your facility is what's inadequate, not the media. You need to upgrade your facility to match the needs of the media that want to cover your event, period. Press facilities often get overlooked, and that's a press and a game administration staff, your clock operator, your scoreboard operator, your play clock operator. That's a group that's also working with coaches to try to let coaches have space in there too so that they can coach their teams from up top and do an adequate job of that. So these are 
all things that get overlooked we're trying to approve this field or that field i think emotion comes into it i think sometimes people feel bad about taking a home game away from this community it hasn't been since the 90s that home games were regularly taken away from people because their facility wasn't good enough there were some improvements made people stepped up their facility sometimes last ditch efforts were made to grow grass here to dry a field here to have a condition be better or cover it with tarp you know all kinds of things people would run fans under tarps and try to keep fields dry if the condition were bad or try to dry up muddy patches or, or keep a field from freezing. But either way, we don't challenge those the way we used to. Field conditions have become an absolute mess, and all you need to do is look at this weekend's games to know that. So that alone is a huge argument in favor of West Virginia going to neutral sites. There's the injury factor, too, when you're playing on garbage fields. Some of those mud bogs you could turn or break an ankle in. What happens when West Virginia has a four- or a five-star caliber player that injures himself playing on a crappy-looking field in the postseason? What happens when someone who is recruited highly, maybe even in a sport that's not football, steps aside from a playoff game and skips a playoff game because the conditions are too poor and that person and doesn't want to risk injury. That's the same thing as college players skipping bowl games because they don't want to ruin their status in the NFL draft. I would argue this is an even bigger one because there are schools that might pull college scholarships from players if they hurt themselves playing high school football on a bad facility and hurt themselves, especially if football is not the sport they're receiving the scholarship in. If we continue down this path, we're going to have a devastating injury that's going to crop up that will reignite this discussion for real, or we're going to have somebody that sits out a game or skips a game to avoid injury because the field conditions are so poor. And they're going to get criticized for that, and it's not going to be fair because you're talking about a kid's college education at that point, which could hold an entire future with it. But one of the bigger reasons, too, is travel. We've not even scratched the surface of this yet. Musselman came four hours across the state last week to play Parkersburg South. South will return the trip to the Eastern Panhandle four hours next weekend to play Martinsburg. There are a lot of facilities in between the two sites, and there are people that regularly advocate that neutral sites can be played, and they'll even post on message boards a list of places that could be used as neutral sites if that's what the state went to. I don't know how I feel about making a completely neutral facility in terms of you go halfway, I go halfway, because there's some places in the state and there's some places even in Ohio where this is done where it's not quite equitable. You see one fan base going 30 minutes, one going an hour and a half to go play on a field somewhere in the playoffs, and sometimes it's the higher seed that has the farther travel, and that's not always fair that way. But my answer to this would be keep the first three rounds on home fields, but mandate that those home fields have artificial surfaces, and by all means, do do a better job of making sure that the facility is up to standards and not just when it comes to the number of people that you can seat and the number of blades of grass that are on the field. I don't think this is going to shock many of you, but this week's poll, should all West Virginia playoff games be played on artificial surfaces? Yes or no? Why or why not? Should all West Virginia playoff games be played on artificial surfaces? Yes or no? Why or why not? So, again, not a shocker after the way that, well, for one, I teased it for two, after the way that we talked about this earlier, you kind of know how I feel. I'd like to know how you feel. Let us know. Let's take a look at the games this week in Class AAA. You've got number three, Spring Valley, and number two, Cabell Midland, Friday at 730 
Saturday at 1.30, it's number one Martinsburg hosting number four Parkersburg South. I like Cabell Midland in this one. Other than Martinsburg, they have looked like the dominant force in Class AAA this season. Not that Spring Valley isn't, but I think they've had a great season to get to the three seed. I think Cabell Midland has too much juice in this one, and it's the Knights are my pick to go onto the island. We'll see what happens there. Parkersburg South and Martinsburg, I'm not going to pick the game. I've told you my thoughts earlier. At least South will have the shot to take down the Giant, and if they do, it might be one of the bigger upsets in state history. This is a 54-game winning streak. The Martinsburg is on right now. It's impressive, and it will not be an easy task for the South Patriots. In Class AA, number 4 Bluefield visits number 1 Fairmont Senior Friday at 7.30, and number 2 Bridgeport hosts number 6 Oak Glen Saturday at 1.30. Fairmont Senior has reportedly battled some injuries. Bluefield, of course, a perennial favorite. The winner of this game might be the team that wins it all, regardless of whether or not it's the Polar Bears or the Beavers. And then Bridgeport Oak Glen. Oak Glen beat Polka and a very controversial game last weekend. Uh, there was a catch-no-catch no catch call, a couple calls that fans were not pleased with in a couple different areas of that game. Oak Glen won controversially, which they have to be a little frustrated about because both Oak Glen and Polka came into that game 11-0. And the knock on those teams, well, they're 3-6 and at 11-0 because they haven't played anybody. So Oak Glen goes on the road and gets the win, and still people want to put an asterisk beside it. So now they're going to go to Bridgeport and see if they can knock off a traditional power in Class AA. And I feel like only then might they validate their season, but give credit to Oak Glen. A number 6 ranking in the state, they're 12-0. A great season and for them, you know, hey, if they can get the win, they'll be headed back home, essentially. A short trip down the road to Wheeling Island Stadium. In Class A, number 5, Williamstown visits number 1, Doddridge County on Friday at 7.30. And number 10, Wheeling Central Catholic visits number 3, Pendling County, also Friday night. Interesting that Wheeling Central chose to give themselves and Pendling County both a short week, given that both of those teams played Saturday afternoon. The winner is going to have eight days to prepare for the state championship, though. So that's kind of a big thing. A lot of people have written Central off after the injury to Curtis McGee. They've continued to stick around. They scored 26 points in two games and won them both because the defense shut out one team and they held another team to 12. Sometimes you gotta do just enough to win. So 13 points in back-to-back weeks was enough to win for Wheeling Central. They're gonna play a Pendleton County team that played stiff defense as well. They kept the St. Mary's offense off the board last week. This game might be another battle in the mud. Again, it'll be at Pendleton County on Friday. It's hard to tell what the weather will be like by the time we get to Friday or what would have precipitated in the Pendleton County area. I look for this to be another ugly game. I, I feel like if somebody reaches two touchdowns, that might be enough to win. If somebody reaches 20, that'll definitely be a winning score. This might be 7-6, 8-6. It might be a PAT try or a two-point conversion one way or the other that decides this. An ugly score, a safety thrown in there. Give us something like 10-8, to a touchdown, a two-pointer, and a safety, or 9-6, something like that. This, this is going to be a funky score, I think, and I don't think this is going to be the most artfully played football game, but for Wheeling Central. They're confident. They believe in themselves now, and they think they can get back to the island. Williamstown or Doddridge County. I'm still not sure that Williamstown has the firepower to get past Doddridge County, but this will be a pretty good game. I think it'll be within two touchdowns. I think the Yellow Jackets, if they're going to make it happen, this is the time for them to do it. They'll never be better than they are right now. Ty Moore's having a great postseason, like we said earlier. Five rushing touchdowns and 400 yards in two games. Hunter America's also having a big postseason for Doddridge County. I think Doddridge County wins, but they pull it off in a very 
close fashion. It wouldn't surprise me if Williamstown pulls this off, though. And how would you like, after all of this, you could still see Williamstown Wheeling Central on the island next weekend. It would almost be hilarious for anybody out there that doubted whether those two schools could make it after the adversity they went through. More so Wheeling Central than Williamstown, but Williamstown lost their running back early in the season, two to a broken leg. But it's not like they are without adversity. They had a quarterback battle coming into the season. They finally settled on Braden Modisett, and that's gone well for them. Wheeling Central's had to replace their quarterback with an injury to McGee, so you could still have it. Will those two teams still make it to Wheeling Island after all that they've been through? And that could be the crazy finish that any high school season deserves, and especially this one in West Virginia. Our games of the week are on Seven Ranges Radio. V96.9 has that Parkersburg South Martinsburg game. Our coverage begins Saturday at noon with a full hour of countdown to kickoff. The pregame is live from Martinsburg at 1 p.m., and the kick between the Patriots and the Bulldogs at 1.30 p.m. Rate us and review us. Download us on iTunes. Subscribe to us there. Subscribe to us on SoundCloud. You can find us other place. New episodes of the pod out every Wednesday during the high school football season. Next week will be our second to last episode of this season. We'll do a wrap-up show after the Super 6. So next week we'll run down the semifinal round, the teams that were still in it, and we'll battle on, take on some of these issues that we talked about in the poll questions. And I'm sure a lot of people will have some interesting opinions on this one. I'll have some too. And uh, any other issues that crop up during the semifinals, we'll also preview the Super 6. And then our season finale will come in two weeks. So the week after the Super 6 will be our finale. We'll look at the top five stories from the area this season, and i got a surprise feature in store for you on the finale as well. That'll do it for us this week. My name is Eric Little. Thank you for joining us once again this week. Come find us next week, and until then, enjoy the games, everybody. This has been the Eric Little High School Football Podcast. Don't forget to like us on Facebook and vote in our weekly poll. Come back next week for another new episode, and thanks for listening.